Depression doesn't live in the dark. I remember hearing stories about a girl my sister knew who killed herself. I thought about her a lot. It was almost hypnotizing. It didn't make sense. And yet, it did. I fought with my mom when I was 10. I didn't want to go to school that day. We both yelled and I cried and ran out of our blue Ford Expedition through the garage past the kitchen into my room slamming the door. I had a clay palm tree that functioned as a jewelry holder. One frond held brown scapulars. I held one in my hand. I didn't pray for divine intervention. I was consumed by a different thought. The thought of strangling myself with it. I was 10. I didn't know what death was. I had some surface-level understanding of heaven and hell and purgatory, but in that moment, I wanted to die. Because the thought of going to school, of getting in the car, of coming home, of living, it was too much. The thing is, I didn't have a miserable childhood. I know I felt like an outsider most of the time, but I didn't mind being alone much. I wasn't bullied, my family is lovely, and yet I was miserable. It was 8 in the morning. This is not going to be a happy podcast. It might be darkly funny sometimes, at least that's what I hope. I don't mean to be a downer, but reflection is rarely joyous. And that's what this podcast is. It's me, a 20-something, completely lost in her place in the world, writer adjacent, trying to be a better human, reflecting on my life and the world around me. I'm warning you now, I'm going to be extremely earnest here. I'm going to be as honest as I can, which isn't the easiest thing for me. But it's important to this project, and if there's one thing that can be said about me, I love a damn project. That is, when I'm doing well. I'm doing well right now. In parts of this, it may sound like I'm not. I've been writing this essay, unsure of its final form, for a long time. It spanned across months where I had nothing in me to continue living, but I did anyways. In months where I'm capable and excited and, dare I say it, happy. But even in those good months, something lurks above my head, waiting for a day where I wake up on the wrong side of functioning. But I find that I don't mind the bad days too much, once they're done. It reminds me that I still have to fight for something. What is that something? Well, it's me. Corny, I know, God, just saying, I feel like I'm 14 on Tumblr again, pouring out my feelings for an audience of maybe 15 people. It does occur to me now that this podcast is pretty much that. I'm pouring out my feelings for something that will be listened to by maybe 10 people. My audience has gone down since my teenage angst feels bad poetry-inducing blogging days. The good news is I'm not doing this for other people to listen. That's not to say I'm completely without vanity. I do have fantasy about this going viral. I was born in 1997, and this is who I am. Content is king. Circling back to my point, I'm primarily doing this for me. I would like to have something to show for this time of gestures broadly. I want to be productive and I don't have that much talent, but one thing I think I can do is write a hopefully somewhat compelling, intimate personal essay and read it out loud. So here goes that. When my mom would talk about the girl who killed herself, she would always express how sad it was, say, if she could just get through that one dark night. For a while, that was the thought that saved me. The nights where I'd lay in bed, feeling hopeless, I would just think, I have to get through this one dark night. But at some point, that stopped working. Because my depression didn't stay in the dark. It could not be contained by fear of a light. It crept into everything else, too. Waking up became worse in those dark moments at night. 
I'll be in the middle of my day and I'll stub my toe and I'll want to die. It's not always triggered. It's rarely specific. It's hardly ever a direct result of something traumatic. It's pervasive and omnipresent. I've noticed that my mother doesn't talk about the one dark night anymore. Not since she's watched her daughter live like this. My senses are suicidal. I experience the world as someone who wants to die. I hear a conversation between friends and I wonder what it would be like without me, if I wasn't here, if I had gone through with it on one terrible morning. I read a line in a book that drives mortality through my brain and it feels like I'm living on borrowed times. I taste something sweet and instead of it bringing joy, I wonder if I'm just prolonging my existence, stretching it out so it's thin, so thin you can look outside of it like a window. I smell something bad like my roommate making salmon and cookies at 3 a.m. And I think to myself, this could be the last thing I ever smell. Isn't that awful? Bounces against the walls of my consciousness, poking holes, raking scratches because it is warm. I feel the brush of a stranger, and I wonder if they're as miserable as I am. Almost two years ago, my friend killed himself. His death was devastating and numbing simultaneously. He wasn't my closest friend, and the months before his death, I rarely saw him. I didn't even know him very long in hindsight. His death was everything and nothing. My therapist suggested I write him a letter. I couldn't think of anything to say. People always say when someone takes their own life, their loved ones are left with a million questions. I'm only left with one for him. Why you? When I imagine my death, and just to be clear, we all do it in some way, I don't think it'll be a car accident or a heart thing or cancer. I'm pretty sure it'll be suicide. You see what I mean by honest? I warned you I was going to be brutally honest. They might be hard truths, they're probably not what you imagined my truths to be, but I'm telling you they are my truths, my cold dark truths, and it may sound like a call for help, it's not. I'm doing well, as I said. In the good times, I imagine the suicide will be when I'm old as hell and I feel like I've lived a good life. I'm not entirely certain if this is because I'm a control freak and I need to control even my death, or if it really is just the depression programmed into my eventually ending inner monologue. I'd like to say that this outlook gives me some kind of net benefit, that there's a silver lining, brighter than the pain, that the good outweighs the bad, that it gives me some special perspective that makes me cherish the moments I am living or love the people in my life harder. I couldn't say one way or another. This is the only way I've ever thought. Maybe I need to change my meds again? And the darkness of my thoughts would disappear and I could imagine a world where I grow old and die of natural causes, but I don't know if I'm interested in that. Not the whole growing old, peacefully dying like the woman in the notebook with the love of my life right next to me part. That part sounds nice. Just the idea of changing how I've always seen myself, my life, my world. I don't know that I want to change that. I think those parts are what make me me. There are downsides, those moments talking to a friend where it could should be about connection, but instead I'm suddenly led down a thought road of do they really want me here? Would they be better off without me here? Those aren't inherent to me. I know that. That's the depression. That's the broken part of me. The part of me that can be fixed through medication and therapy. But there are private parts of me, parts that create the kaleidoscope through which I see the world in all its colors, that I think shape my place in this world. This is all heavy. Let's take a break to talk about songs. Songs about depression, but hey, it's music and everybody loves music. I'll start with the Shinedown classic, Sound of Madness. If you're unfamiliar, congrats, you had a better middle school experience than I did. Shinedown is fueled by angst in general, as with many of the bands I claim to like in middle school. 
And Sound of Madness really goes the extra mile in My Pain is Special and Worstness that plagued this genre of music. Now, this is a song with a bad message. It is not what I would call healthy to listen to if you're in a vulnerable mental place. However, it's a great shower song if, you, if you're even a little bit smad. Sad mad. The song's premise is that mental illness is fake, and people who claim it to have it are just having a pity party. We know better now. That was 2008. And while the song is outdated message-wise, I listen to it so much in my life that I'd be remiss not to talk about it. Now, despite the self-aggrandizing, I know pain better than you, completely condescending part, I do think there's a small point to be gleaned here. I wouldn't say the darkest hour never comes in the night. It just maybe comes when you're not expecting it. This is especially true when it comes to grieving and trauma. The next part, to me, is about the uselessness of preparing for the worst without taking steps to make it better. However, just because something is useless doesn't make it any easier to stop. When you're in the depths of the depression, you know that there are ways to get help. However, walking the path to get help is a rocky terrain, to say the least. Nonetheless, there does come a point where you have to say you're not going to live like this anymore. You're not going to surrender to your demons. This is, of course, where a support system is important. Having trouble finding a therapist? Ask a friend to help you look, or at least ask them to keep you accountable as you search. This part is not easy. It can feel impossible. In fact, I guarantee that it will feel like that at some point. This is where you have to be kind to yourself. You have to be proud of yourself for any small movement in the forward direction. I grew up hearing the Rolling Stones and I never thought much about the song Paint It Black until I was making my Guitar Jams playlist a couple months ago and I actually listened to some level intent. I knew it was a sad song, the melody doesn't leave much room for interpretation of mood, but I did connect with the lyrics once I heard it. I think this speaks to the sort of jealousy you can feel for the so-called normal people, the people who aren't experiencing depression or anxiety. That whole depression is awful and I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy thing. Uh, maybe nice people think that way. I'm not sure I'm a nice person, because I would wish it on my worst enemy. For one, he's mean, and I think mean people should feel the pain they cause. And two, it would be nice to not be alone. Of course, I know better. I am not alone. Depression affects a lot of people. Everyone's depression is different, but there are some universal experiences, and if not universal, at least relatable. Isn't that the point of me doing this? So someone listening might relate and feel comforted that they're not the only ones whose heart is black. So someone listening who has a friend going through a hard time can understand why their friend isn't able to enjoy the colors of their world. The part that I really get is fading away so you don't have to face the facts. This was college for me. I struggled so much with wanting not just to be good, but great or special that I failed to do much of anything at all. So I just faded away. My therapist came up with a term for what I do, cocooning. I hide away from friends, I don't talk to my mother, I seesaw schoolwork and get carried off into worlds I find more bearable. Binging a TV show, speeding through a novel, or the worst because it's the most addicting and ceaseless, falling down the hole of fanfiction. If you've never been down that rabbit hole, good for you champ. 
I wish you all the luck in your normalcy. Some of us are nerds. I just wanna be okay, be okay, be okay. I just wanna be okay today. I just wanna be okay, be okay, be okay. I just wanna be okay today. Be Okay by Ingrid Michaelson is a really good song. I actually had only heard it in passing before doing research for this essay, and all the songs that I had found about depression were by men. Which is interesting, because usually women are allowed to be more emotional, whereas men have to shut up, stop crying, and be a man. But there aren't a ton of songs by women about depression that aren't about being brokenhearted, mostly over men. I don't know why this is. It's an interesting question. And I'm not nearly qualified or smart enough to answer. But my best stab at it is that we give men more agency over their pain, at least in art compared to women who have to deal with the expectation that they're emotional so that perhaps the worry is that it will seem trite or cliche. But circling back to the song, it repeats in a jaunty tone, I just want to be okay. I just want to be okay today. I just want to feel today. I just want to feel something today. I just want to know today. I just want to know something today. This speaks to the lack of sure footing we feel when we're depressed. It's more than just a sad place, it's a confusing place. It's why we go to therapy to talk it all out, to order the chaos wreaking havoc. The song is also about recognizing that we're lost and that we're out of the present moment and that desire to find it. I would love to feel today, just today. Ready to dive back into the heavy parts? This is the part where I say the dark stuff out loud. This is the part where I say the shadowy parts out loud. This is the part where I say the no one can hear this, this pain is only for me parts out loud. When I'm doing bad, and sometimes when I'm doing good, I fantasize about my death. I romanticize on the what ifs. I look at a pill bottle and think what comes after. I think about teachers finding out, and I imagine they'll say it's sad, I had so much potential. I think about family friends who will wonder what could have possibly gone so wrong. I think about friends who will wonder in a secret hidden part of themselves if maybe this is better. I think about family who will not be able to comprehend how I could leave them. I cry as I write this. Slow, silent tears, silent but suppressed noises fill up my chest and choke my neck. This is starting to sound like bad poetry. Oh shit, this is just one bad poem, isn't it? Now that I've acknowledged it, it's not as bad, right? That's how this works. Anyways, I imagine all these things. I imagine the hurt it will cause, and I still think it'll be better. I still think this world would be better off without me. It would be a character-building exercise for everyone. It'd be hard, and it would suck, but I wouldn't be in any pain anymore. I know we've learned better that suicide is a selfish act, and I don't know if I've heard it so much growing up that I believe it, but I think for me it would be a selfish act. All I know is that this hurts and that wouldn't, and it's not just one dark night, it's a dark living, and it's not a just a permanent solution to a temporary problem, it's a permanent solution to a persistent, pervasive, panoramic problem. It's been another few months since I've written anything on this. I keep changing how long it's been since my friend committed suicide. What's changed during that time? Well, the walls came crashing down. It's the plague times. I've moved to Portland to take care of my two-year-old niece. I could go on here about how she's a bright spot in the darkness, but I think that's a different podcast written by a not me. In fact, it's antithetical to my point. Depression doesn't live in the dark. It lives in the bright parts too. I take care of my niece. I'm depressed. She goes upstairs and I have free time for a few hours. I'm depressed. My depression stretches like taffy over and throughout my life, sticky and sickening and rots your teeth. It's not the good taffy either, like the saltwater ones my mother brought home from Atlantic City that one time. It's banana-flavored Laffy Taffy. 
that no one in their right tongue would like. I'm not saying there's nobody who likes banana-flavored Laffy Taffy. Some people like this brand of hell. Those are the people we should be wary of, the people who indulge in misery. I hope I don't sound like one of those people. I don't want to be depressed. I don't long for the torture or revel in the suffering. Yes, I do believe it makes me who I am, and no, I don't want to change who I am. I just wish there was an alternate path, a way for me to be me without having to live in my own brain. My brain often feels like a hostile place to live. It's like I have roommates who hate me and go out of their way to sabotage me. And also there's an infestation of mice in the apartment and it's up four flights of stairs, no elevator, and there's no AC. People visit and they say, it's charming, it has its quirks, seems like it'd be a great deal. But I'm starting to learn how to live with my brain roommates and mice and stuffiness. I have a new therapist. We're still getting to know each other, but she has this theory about how we have different parts of ourselves. And I'm learning to think of my suicidal part of myself as not a hostile intruder determined to do harm, but rather a protective part of myself. It doesn't deserve to be demonized, just soothed. I recently remembered that once in middle school we were asked who our heroes were. One girl said Eleanor Roosevelt, another claimed Hillary Clinton, and I was extremely jealous of these answers because they were my answers. And so I said the most provocative thing I could think of. Sylvia Plath. I exclaimed to the horror and confusion of my teacher. When I first heard that Sylvia Plath killed herself by placing her head in the oven, I was fascinated. It's dark, and I'm not saying it's by any means how I plan on going, but there's always been something about it that's fascinated me. Since remembering that middle school event, I've been reading some more Sylvia Plath. Reading her at 13 is different from reading her at 23. Most of her stuff is enchanting the way poetry is and meaningless to me the way I wish poetry often wasn't. However, the moon in the yew tree is one that I find more than enchanting. There's a line where she says, How I would like to believe in tenderness, the face of effigy gentled by candles, bending on me particular, its mild eyes. Plath is talking here, or so the experts say, about how she yearns for a loving relationship with her mother. My mother is the most loving. She loves everyone, and she really loves me. Seriously, I won the mother lottery. This line strikes me for a different reason. I think I'm too cynical, too harsh in my judgment of others. I would like to believe in tenderness. I would like to turn that tender eye in on myself. I would like to emanate light for others. In the final line, well, it gets right to the earnest part, doesn't it? I want to be loved. I think we look for metaphor in the means of suicide because the survivors want to assign meaning. I have no idea why anyone does it the way they do. For someone who's been suicidal all her life, and that part about the scapulars is particularly dramatic of me, I don't believe there's much meaning other than this is all I had left and the only way I could think to get the job done. Maybe it's more, but all I know is wanting to go to sleep. I remember one of my teachers telling us that no woman has ever killed themselves by shooting themselves in the face. This is not only a dark fact to share with impressionable teenagers, it's also an inaccurate one. Women have. It's just that they're much less likely to kill themselves in a way that disfigures them. I think this teacher found this to be an indictment of women's vanity, but I don't think it's vain to care about the after. I care about the after. I want to revisit the idea that suicide would be a selfish act of mine. Maybe I'm wrong and it's very problematic of me to say such a thing. But I don't mean selfish in that I'm uncaring for others' feelings. I think about others' feelings a lot. It's part of the fucked up fantasy. Imagining what the world would be like without you. Very George Bailey of me. But I don't have a Clarence Oddbody to show me how bad it would have all been. And of course, the world without me, I'm humble enough to admit, would not be wholly different. 
I am not so vain as to imagine that I significantly worsen the lives around me, but I do in the bad times and sometimes even the good times believe myself to be a burden. Of course, the comeback to this is, well, you can't just will away your existence. And if you killed yourself, wouldn't that be a heavier burden for your family and friends to carry? In this moment, I'd agree with that, of course. It seems obvious. In the thunderstorm that feels like it never will end, I'd say they'd get through it, they'd be better off, they'd be stronger for it, and the darkest, they'd have a story to tell. My new therapist, when making what's called the safety plan, as if preparing for a natural disaster, I could name each of my depressive episodes alphabetically, give them categories. Last month, that was Hurricane Katrina, last week, that was Tropical Storm Lionel. I plugged with the same thought, won't we eventually run out of names? And part of the safety plan is creating who'd you call. I struggle with putting my friends on that list, not because I don't love them or because I don't believe they love me, though the question does come up in my mind often. I just don't want them to worry. My therapist pointed out, wouldn't they rather know before rather than after? But the only question that really matters is whether I want them to. When I read It's Kind of a Funny Story by Ned Vizzini in my freshman or sophomore year of high school, it was my favorite book. At the time, I didn't believe myself to be anything like the main character in the book. I knew there was something up with me. I'm too much of a narcissist to believe I'm just like the other kids. I've always known I was different, not like the other girls. I watched too much CNN, and I cried too much at CNN. The world felt overwhelming, and yet I was still a teenager who believed herself to be bigger than it. I found out years later that the author committed suicide. I remember feeling incredibly betrayed. The character in the book gets better in the end. This made it feel like a lie. It made me feel like the idea of getting better, it was a lie. I don't know if I'll ever be better, which is silly because I'm already in a better place than I was before, which I feel a little guilty about. Nationally, our mental health is in decline. There are a lot of people suffering because of this pandemic, and me, I've lost over 20 pounds. Smiles feel real to me again. I've regained some semblance of focus and passion. I spend my days with the world's cutest two-year-old, and I have a friend who I go to the farmer's market with on Sundays. All in all, it's a good life. So why don't I believe that I'll get better? Because despite all the net good, there's also the bad days. The bad days happen almost once a week, but they're almost always cured by a good nap, and they've recently been confined to one afternoon. It's not so bad, but I worry. Because all it takes is one time. I'm sure this is what keeps my mother up at night. It only takes one time, and the bad days don't stop coming. The bad days, or afternoons, used to be bad weeks, bad months, bad semesters, bad years. So why doesn't the thought that the bad afternoon could turn into bad hours, bad minutes, comfort me? Because I know that it only takes one time. My friend who died, no one saw that coming. At least as far as I know. He seems so happy. His death doesn't make sense. I don't know anything about his death. I only found out what the method was six months ago. I'd been too afraid to ask the question, and I found out by accident. But there's no one to ask this question. Was it one bad moment? I think I know the answer. It wasn't. It was the thought of one more bad moment. This isn't to say I don't imagine a world where I'm better. I can imagine almost anything. I have a very active imagination. I can imagine a world where Bradley Whitford and I are friends and he mentors me through the woes of Hollywood. I just don't think that's very likely. It's possible, but unlikely. I can imagine a future where I'm better, and I do imagine it often. 
I've spent countless hours lost in the imagination of my future. Sometimes it's full tilt, out of reality's bounds kind of imagination. Other times it's simpler. I have a partner who loves me, I have children I love, and I have a job that engages and fulfills me. I don't think that's too much to ask for, but it might be too much to expect. I often keep the bad thoughts away with thoughts of the future. I've been trying to find the right poem to talk about this. I don't want to go the Emily Dickinson route. It seems a little automatic, but I've arrived at the conclusion that when we talk about future and optimism, it's perhaps okay to lean into cliche. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, and yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Bullshit? Bullshit. Maybe I'm an idiot who doesn't understand poetry. This is very possible. But when I read it, I hear that hope is easy, that it comes to you when you most need it, but it's not and it hasn't, not for me. Hope asks a lot of us. Hope dares us to be our best selves. Hope challenges us to believe the unlikely, to indulge in what we're told we ought not to. Hope is a form of self-love. Asking to love yourself? That's more than a crumb. That's a whole damn loaf of bread. So hope is the thing with feathers? Hope is the thing with spikes. It's a freaking hedgehog. Scare it and it will hurt you. Get it to trust you. They'll show you their soft bellies. Okay, okay. If that was a stretch for you, I get it. I'll put it another way. Hope is scary to have in dark times because what if it never comes to fruition? But maybe if we sit with hope just an ounce at a time, maybe we can feel it as freely as we breathe one day. There is no cure for depression. There are steps to alleviate the worst of the pain. I'll never be cured. I'll never be able to chop off the parts of me that make me so doom and gloom, but I can get better, and it matters that my bad years have turned to bad afternoons. Thank you for listening. If this moved you in any way or meant something to you, I'd love to hear from you. Writing this was something I had to do. It took a year and a half. I had no idea what it was going to be, but I was inspired by my favorite podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. Seriously, go listen if you haven't. The old Lang Zan episode, it makes me cry every time. And so I decided that it would be very 2020 of me to make a podcast, so here goes that. Future episodes, I think, will be a bit lighter in subject nature, so if you want to hear more from me, subscribe. I'm not sure exactly how to sign off other than I'm glad that I'm here and I'm glad that you are too.